Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Solis Chukwu in Lagos, Nigeria, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we look back at the 2022 World Cup qualifying playoffs with some hotly contested ties as Senegal beat Egypt as they did in the Africa Cup of Nations final, Ghana winning the West African derby and Cameroon scoring a stunning late winner in Algeria. Also, we have the second part of our interview with one of the biggest figures in women's football in Africa, that's South Africa's Fran Hilton-Smith on the development of the game. Africa is very disadvantaged regarding competitive football, regular competition, and therefore tactical awareness because they don't play enough. As coming later, also we hear from Samuel Osei-Kufour, the former Ghana and Bayern Munich defender on his humble beginnings in life. But let's start with the 2022 World Cup qualifying playoffs for Africa, as Senegal, Ghana, Tunisia, Morocco and Cameroon will be Africa's five representatives at the finals in Qatar later this year. Missing out are Egypt, Nigeria, Mali, DR Congo and Algeria, with lots of drama in Tuesday's second legs. Cameroon with a late, late winner, Salah missing in a shootout, Mane converting and crowd violence in Abuja as Nigeria went out. Well, Ida's away this week. Solis Chukwu with us again from Lagos in Nigeria. Uh, so much to talk about, Solis. Yes, Steve. I mean, back in Nigeria, the mood is very much one of disappointment and great frustration. I think um, the way the qualifying campaign really panned at the end just exposes the um, lack of foresight and the impulsiveness of the Nigeria Football Federation in um, sacking General Raw when they did, and not just that, but in appointing Osin Egwavon as manager. I mean, Egwavon is um, a coach who, in every previous national team assignment he's had, has shown himself to be a little less than you know exemplary in his coaching. The flaws were pretty obvious, but still, NFF went with him, and we've seen the result. It's just unfortunate that there was there was a lot of crowd trouble at the end of the proceedings against Ghana. In Abuja, it was really more about people venting their their frustration at the national team at um, than necessarily any ill will towards Ghana. There's other thing about Nigerians giving away free tickets and stuff, trying to fill the stadium up. I think it, um, that um, crowd control element of ticketing was really lost. Unfortunately, there was loss of life um, with the calf official, which was really unfortunate. But yeah, beyond Nigeria, the other qualifiers, there was a lot to get through. I mean, we expected some really cagey affairs, but instead there was a lot of excitement. I think Cameroon's win in Algeria was really, really enlivening. And I don't think anyone really saw that coming. When Algeria won um, the first leg in Cameroon, it just seemed like they'd set themselves up really well. But Cameroon went to bleed at the stadium where Algeria have, I don't think they've even lost at all before. So um, going there and winning as they did, especially that late, was just really remarkable. I, um, I think it's something that, in a way, sort of validates the decision to bring in Robertson, but not really validates in the sense that it was the right decision, but that if they hadn't qualified, I think Cameroonians would have positively savaged 
um, Feka Foot for that decision because it was a really gratuitous one. I thought Tony Concesa was doing really pretty well in charge, but um, bringing in Rigoberto Song was a huge gamble, and in a way, Feka Foot can claim that it's paid off now. So, um, really good on them. They show real fighting spirit, real character in a difficult stadium, and really, this Algeria side, it's such a far cry from the team that won the 2019 AFCON. It just seems that they've suddenly they've just grown old all of a sudden. And that's that's really, really sad. Tunisia, you know, they did the business, what they had to do, which was not concede at home. They'd already um, had the benefit of a very, very bizarre own goal away from home. So um, by keeping things tight at the back and playing a very, very touchy KG second leg against Mali, they were able to get through. Unfortunately for Mali, who would have hoped to go to their first World Cup? But I think this is just an extension of what we saw at the AFCON. Mali are a really impressive side. But in terms of actually getting goals and putting everything together inside the six-yard box they're just really problematic for them um egypt too now that was that was a really tight one um we saw it was pretty much a replay of the afcon final which is penalty shootouts but this time everybody was just missing and that that really shows you how tense qualification for the world cup can be it was a really really tense tight affair in Dakar with um, Mohamed Salah of Liverpool missing, Zizo of Egypt missing, like these are really reliable penalties, even Kalidou Koulibaly at Napoli um, who was outstanding over the two legs also missed, so it just shows how tight and how tense these qualifiers can be, Um, but ultimately the African champions made it through, so one might say that Sadio Mane has come out on top of of the Liverpool duo with Mohamed Salah there. So, um, Morocco, too, a very professional, did the business. I don't know the Congo, as most people would expect. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks there to Solis Chuku in Lagos. So, so we'll have two North African sides, two West African and one Central African team. And the FIFA World Cup starts on the 21st of November in Qatar. As well as, uh, well as the World Cup qualifiers, we had the preliminary round ties in qualifying for the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations. And the Gambia, who reached the quarterfinals of this year's Nations Cup, nearly went out. But a stoppage time goal against Chad put them through 3-2 on aggregate. Sao Tome did well to beat Mauritius 4-3 on aggregate. Lesotho, Eswatini and South Sudan also made it to the group stage of qualifying. Right next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, show brought to you by Passion for Sport. I've been speaking to one of the biggest figures in women's football in Africa. That's South Africa's Fran Hilton-Smith. Fran is a former coach of the South Africa women's national team, former head of women's football and technical director at the South Africa FA. Uh, She's currently a CAF instructor. And now Fran has written a book that was published recently. It's called A Song for Banyana. Uh, Banyana as in the nickname for the South Africa women team Banyana Banyana. Uh, last week we heard how she'd been involved in the development of women's football in South Africa from the 1980s as it grew as a multiracial sport for women uh, despite this still being in the apartheid era. Now Fran encountered a lot of football politics and it was only in 1999 that she finally became the South African national women's team coach. In this second part of the interview I asked Fran Hilton-Smith what this meant to her. Well, everything. Um, it was something that I always wanted to do. I'd been very fortunate that I'd had a lot of, I'd studied the Women's World Cups intensely. I'd followed specifically the U.S. Women's National Team who were the world champions, 91, 95, whatever, so many times. I'd studied them and I was fortunate in 98 that there was an exchange program with U.S. Soccer 
and uh, I went as the women's coach representative and so I felt I was equipped to take the team and do something with them and I think I did. We lost the final of course in 2000 to Nigeria and that game that got world attention for all the wrong reasons when there was a riot and whatever but it also attracted the attention of FIFA and in In 2001, I was appointed by FIFA to go to the first Women's World Cup under 19 in Canada to write the reports. I started my coach uh, instructor career with FIFA. Uh, They sent me to Iran to go and do coaching development and to the World Cups. And since then, I've never missed a Women's World Cup uh, and have worked for FIFA for many, many years. And Cap. So my coaching career with Pinyana was, as I say, a dream come true and opened many, many doors for me going forward in world football. One thing I've really picked uh, from your book, Fran, is your total determination uh, to make the most of opportunities uh, to get to do things that help you to develop yourself. So you uh, spent a lot of time doing coaching courses and uh, You write in the book about uh, how you were so determined to go to the FIFA Women's World Cup of 1995, just the second edition of the tournament, and you didn't really have resources to get there, but you did get there. Yeah, I was determined. I'd I'd started following, as I said, the women's football, and I wanted to be there in 1995. I'd sold most of my uh, possessions to get the air tickets and stuff, and... I had to backpack it around there, and I wasn't really used to backpacking. It wasn't something that was common here in South Africa for me. And I backpacked. I was fortunate to get some accommodation, and it was a tremendous experience. I saw, you know, in reality, the U.S. national team playing against China. Um, I saw... Hope Powell, the English coach, who's now a very good friend of mine, was playing in her final years. And and it was really, I learned so much. I became very good friends with the media officer, Anson Dorrance, of U.S. Women's National Team. And he invited me round to their change rooms and training. And he helped me with information and Even back then in 95, they were already doing match analysis and video analysis, which was took many, many years to get to South Africa and still is, is not even common in many places in Africa, video analysis. So I was very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time and met many tremendous people. Michelle Akers was the the big era then of U.S. soccer. I got to meet her personally. And all that information I came back with to South Africa and gave to our coaches, men and women. I became a SAFA coach educator. And on all my coaching courses, I shared the knowledge I'd learned because it wasn't just beneficial to the women. The men were also going through a big learning curve. I mean... They won in 96, which was great, but we're still learning in in men and women's football. So one thing that's very important to you uh, in coaching is tactics. Um, Where do you think women's football was 
in Africa tactically uh, back in the 90s? And where do you think it is now? Well, we need a lot, a lot, tremendous. It's the area that I believe African football lacks in. And it's because um, teams in Europe play each other on a regular basis. England plays, Germany plays, Holland plays, Denmark, because they're so close. They can get on a, boat, a train or a tube or something and bus go and play each other. Whereas in Africa, to play a friendly against a, a, a neighboring country, like if we want to go and play Nigeria or Cameroon or Ghana, it's a huge expense, huge. It involves a big flights and accommodation and drama and whatever. So, therefore, African teams never really progress tactically, whereas European teams and coaches playing on a regular basis, had to think, okay, how can I be better? And the way to be better was to have better tactics. And and tactical development is something that is so critical in in teams. And, I mean, if I even look at Nigeria, who've been at the World Cup since 91, I think they've only got in the top 10 in the World Cup once, I'm open to correction, in that time, and, and it's just because we don't compete in Africa. We don't compete enough. Uh, there's only the African Women Championships, which, of course, was cancelled, the last one, which for me was disastrous for women's football. There's one coming up now in Morocco. But, but that one's a World Cup qualifier. Four teams go to the World Cup, and many of those teams haven't played for years, so it's 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 very tough. Then, when you, I remember Zimbabwe qualified for the Olympics, and I organised one friendly against Zimbabwe, one before they went to the Olympics. Now you must go and compete against America, who's playing fifty-four friendlies a year. It, it's not possible. So Africa is very disadvantaged regarding competitive football, regular competition, and therefore tactical awareness because they, they don't play enough. Do you think the expansion of the Africa Women's Cup of Nations from eight teams to 12 teams will help? Absolutely, because it means teams are playing. And that's the problem is in Africa we don't play. And I think also something, as a member of the CAF Technical Committee for nine years, I thought at every meeting was to have the Women's Champions League because it would give players more competition. And thank goodness it came to fruition. We had the first Champions League. Uh, Sundowns of South Africa won that. So that also is, is a big step forward because... My motto in football is, if you don't compete, you can't compete. So you've got to compete and play. And that's why I made it my mission to transcend as many players as possible to play overseas in Europe. And we now have many players playing in the top leagues, Barcelona, AC Milan, Tembi, Linda, Rafael Wijani, Nigeria, Asi Sateshwala, many of them playing in Europe. And that's the only way Africa can 
can really try and catch up is to have players playing on the world stage to to learn how to compete against the, these teams. Otherwise, we're going to keep we're going to keep dragging behind. That's South Africa's Fran Hilton-Smith, one of the pioneers of women's football in Africa, uh, currently uh, a CAF instructor. And her book that has been published recently is called A Song for Banyana. And a final part of this interview on the show next week. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, we hear from the archives from Agana's Samuel Osei Kufour. Well, now let's go to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK. And let's take a look at the World Cup qualifiers for Europe, with North Macedonia causing a stunning upset, knocking out Italy in the semi-finals of the playoffs, although uh, then losing to Portugal, Stuart. On the eve of the 2022 FIFA World Cup draw, we now know two more of the European finalists who qualified through this week's playoffs. Portugal, having beaten Turkey in the semi-final, beat North Macedonia 2-0 in the playoff final. This confirms the prospect of seeing Cristiano Ronaldo in, presumably, his final World Cup. The victory over North Macedonia was a real Manchester United triumph, with Bruno Fernandes scoring both goals, the first one after playing a 1-2 with Ronaldo. Poland also gained a place by beating Sweden after their semi-final with Russia was cancelled and Russia expelled from the World Cup. The third playoff place will be decided in June with Scotland's semi-final with Ukraine having been postponed because of that Russian invasion of their country. The final place will be between Scotland, Ukraine and Wales. But the qualifiers have almost been overshadowed by the elimination of Italy, reigning European champions from last year, four times World Cup winners, most recently in 2006. Italy has some of the best players in the world, some of the greatest clubs in the world, Juventus, Inter Milan, AC Milan. But for the second successive World Cup, Italy has not qualified. A generation of Italian players will end their careers without playing in the World Cup. They were eliminated in the semi-final by North Macedonia, who scored the only goal of the game in the final minutes. Canada also qualified for the World Cup this week for the first time since 1986. Ivory Coast played a friendly game against England in London this week, with England winning 3-0. But Ivory Coast's chances of winning were severely hampered when Serge Aurier having had a yellow card for a tackle, got into a furious argument with the referee, who produced a second yellow card, leaving the elephants to play for more than half the game a man short. But there's an interesting backstory to that game. Among the England substitutes was Mark Gay. He was born in Abidjan, but grew up in England and currently plays for Crystal Palace. As he has not yet played a competitive game for England, he could opt to play for the elephants, and head coach... Patrice Bommel has made clear that he's interested in having him. Now, a quick update on Chelsea. We understand that there are four main bidders to buy the club and the US bank, which is handling the sale, will choose one of them by 18 April. And then that bid will be scrutinised by the Premier League and the UK government. And staying with Chelsea... It's been a strange week for Roman Abramovich, who was in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and became ill with allegations that he had been poisoned. 
He then turned up in Turkey at the peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. He certainly hasn't been idle since announcing that he was selling Chelsea. The Premier League resumes this weekend after the international break with Liverpool at home to Watford, Manchester City away to Burnley and Chelsea at home to Brentford. The battle for fourth place remains intriguing with Arsenal having a tricky away game at Crystal Palace with any points dropped in that game giving an opportunity to Manchester United, West Ham and Tottenham to close the gap. With Burnley and Watford, as I said, playing the top two and Norwich away to Brighton, it's hard to see any joy for the bottom three this weekend. Last weekend, with the men having the weekend off, Manchester United ladies had a rare opportunity to play at Old Trafford. They beat Everton 3-1 in front of a crowd of over 20,000. Yes, thanks Stuart. Good to have the English Premier League back this weekend. Uh, Next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, we go to our archive and to the first part of an amazing interview with Samuel Osei-Kufour, the former Ghana and Bayern Munich defender, who you might also be familiar with as a football analyst on Supersport TV. And now Kufour played for Bayern Munich in Germany for 11 seasons, making 175 appearances and winning the UEFA Champions League in 2001, having finished runners-up in 1999. Kufour won the BBC African Footballer of the Year Award in 2001. He made 59 appearances for the Ghana senior team and became the youngest Olympic football medalist of all time, winning bronze at the 1992 Olympics at the age of 15. Now, in this in-depth interview from our archive with Erasmus Kwao in Accra, Kufour talks about his faith, the ups and downs in his life, including the death of his young daughter, who tragically drowned in 2003. Uh, first of all, Erasmus spoke to Kufour about the humble beginnings that he had in life. For me, being a last born of the family, having three sisters with my mother, was a, a hardship, you know, from the beginning. You have to go through a lot. Um, we were living in an uncompleted house without any door. You know, it was a very tough from the upbringing and a lot of people know my story. So it became very difficult for me, for my sisters to accept that I want to play football. Uh, they really want me to go to school. But I didn't have any, any feeling going to school. I want to go out there on the street and play football. So people try to dash me money and so on and so forth. But my mama has a faith in me, you know. She said to me, leave him alone, let him do whatever that pleases him. So my sisters were always fighting with my mother. Why he is the only boy in the family? He has to go to school. We want him to become a lawyer, a doctor, whatever it is. My mom always stayed behind me. He said, no, leave him alone, let him do whatever pleases him. So for my mom to tell this, and I, I think I have to prove a point to my sisters, that whatever that you set your eyes on, you know, with the faith behind you can achieve your goal because it come to a point that I have to play football. And I was playing for Ghana National Team under 17. It became very tough for me because I didn't have a football shoe. So my mom, that was the first time I saw my mom lying to my sisters. You know, it was a very painful thing because she said to my sisters, uh, the TV is with the repairs. But I carried the TV on my hair with my mom. We went to some place and give the TV to somebody and get the money so my mom can give me the money to buy a football shoe. And after that, my mom told the whole area neighbors 
that today something was quite go. It's not about, you know, sometimes we have a feeling. Sometimes God spoke to us, but we don't appreciate what he is telling us. So my mom said to the neighbors, and God so good, I scored go for Ghana. And we get the money, so I have to buy another TV, a bigger one to replace what we sold. So, you know, that's what, like I said before, nothing happened by accident. It's a reason and purpose. God knows why it happened like that. So in my faith, I always believe in him. You know, I always go down on my knees and pray to get strength, knowledge, to get ability to extend myself to the world. But me doing that, it's not just a simple thing. You have to go through a lot. People may doubt you from so many angles. Even when I went to Germany, I think my first game in Germany with Bayern Munich against Stuttgart, I was praying in the dressing room. I just hold my Jay-Z and I go down my knees and I was praying in the small corner. So all the players, you know, the white people, they just came and said, wow, look at what he's doing. And I was so good that day because God knows my heart. God has prepared something for me. Maybe I didn't know how much he has prepared for me. But for me to go down on my knees and pray and let people know that I was praying to God, that thing alone was okay for me. Because then now, later, a lot of players become also a friend of mine. So maybe I share a word of God with them. But they are laughing. They are doing all this. And I think it's a funny thing. Fine, let's give God a chance to come into your life and see what God can do for you. There was one Brazilian. He was very, very... Christian, that was Jorginho, and then Paulo Sergio was also very Christian. Say Roberto is uh, also very Christian. They are the Brazilians. So for me, God has been amazing since the one that I stepped my uh, my my eyes in Germany. Sami, I just want to take you back. Um, you said your mom had faith and believe in you that you were going to be something or you were going to do something great right from the beginning. So she always backed you, even when your sisters were against it. Can you tell us more about her faith and her belief in Jesus Christ? When my mom, I grew up in a Christian home. I always go to church. Uh, there's Assemblies of God. That's the church that I was born in. So I always go to the school, uh, Sunday school and I have a paper that I have to show to my grandmother that I go to the Sunday school. Otherwise, they won't give me a food because my grandmother wants me to go to church. Instead of going to play football in the morning, he said, go to church and then after that church, you go to play your football, but I was a bit, a bit stubborn, a young boy, I really want to go out there and play football instead of going to church, so it was a different way, but my mom always had the faith in me, she was bold enough to sell a TV that we, or our family watching in, in the evening, and give you the money, so that means he had the faith in you. And what about your father, was he around by then? No, my father was nowhere to be found, my father was in Canada, you know, and I don't blame him for anything. Maybe he went to bring the best to the family. And it was, his best wasn't enough. So I can't just say that I hate my father for that. No, I love my father for that. Why? Could be, maybe if my father would be around, I won't be strong enough to get what I was today. So, or where I am today. So I think it brings me joy when I say this. Nothing happened by accident. It's a reason and purpose. Tell me, can you relate a little bit more to the challenges and, you know, things you had to go through as a young boy in Kumasi? <laughs> For instance, I remember a point in time you told me you were a shoeshine boy, a yeah. cobbler, you know, yeah. going in the streets just to yeah. try and make money. How was life like? Well, I think, uh, like we, we, we rightfully said that my father was nowhere to be found. You know, 
my mother would a single mother with four children. My mother would just wake up early in the morning and go to do a job. So my sister, three of them have to also carry Mori and go and sell them. But I, as a boy, I have to carry my shank box and go to house to house and shank people's shoes before I go to school. And some of the uh, people that I shank their shoe, we all go to the same school and also the same class. How did they feel when, when you see them? Well, if I see them now, I feel great because it tells you the beginning is not important, but at the end is important. And then some of the two guys that I used to go to their house and shine their shoe, I saw them eating every morning, but they never invite me to eat with them because I come from foresight. But when the Bible tells you that don't look at the people who look down upon you, you have to look up to yourself and get a faith in yourself and believe yourself that God can do 10 things around. If God turns this around, nobody can say no to that. So for me, struggling in the in the early stage was a better for me. I prefer to struggle in the early stage than to struggle in the old days. Now I'm having the life of my world. So I think, you know what, I've never been in university, but now I'm in the life of university. God has been amazing to me. If I said he hasn't done it, then I don't know what I'm talking about. He has done amazing things for me. That's Samuel Osei Kufour, the former Ghana and Bayern Munich defender from our archive, speaking to Erasmus Quell, part two of this interview on the show next week. Uh, that's it for the show for this week, though. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, uh, from Solis Chuku in Lagos, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production. <laughs>